Hello ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the greatest games on the blizzard. My name is Martin Speller, with me is Jonathan Wilson, and with us is Martin De Cruz, an Australia-based PhD student, researcher and writer specialising in Uruguayan football history. He's contributed to the blizzard and is currently working on his first book about the early years of the Uruguayan game. Martin, pleasure to have you on the pod. Thank you so much for having me. Today, we go back to the 1954 World Cup, the semi-final that ended Hungary 4, Uruguay 2. Martin, why have you chosen this game? Okay, well, if I'm being honest, this game probably wasn't my first choice. Uh, given my specialties, early Uruguayan football, I know this is early, but I'm talking really, really early Uruguayan football, Yeah, uh, probably would have felt a bit more comfortable with something like, I don't know, Southampton versus Uruguay from 1904 or maybe like an Argentina-Uruguay game from the same decade, something like that. Yeah. But to save your listeners, I guess, from an hour-long monologue, uh, I went the extremely safe option. Uh, and this is, yeah, it's a very safe option seeing that it's uh, being dubbed uh, the, the greatest game in World Cup history and, uh, yeah, game of the century as well. And I think Jonathan as well has some knowledge uh, about Uruguay's opponents. I think he wrote something as well about them. I think that's fair to <laughs> say, yeah. Sure. Anyway, <laughs> um, so, yeah, so the game's hugely significant. So to quote uh, Jonathan as well in his piece uh, in the Blizzard, so the game pitted uh, the best that had been against the best at the time. And that's pretty much it. So the game was hugely significant. Um, Uruguay were the first global footballing power, beginning with their Olympic... Uh, triumphs in the 1920s and that dominance continued throughout the first half of the 20th century and so they were defending world champions after their uh, coming off the 1950 Maracanazo uh, triumph in Rio and they were still undefeated in all uh, world cup or even world championships if you want to count uh, the Olympic uh, victories that uh, yeah Uruguayans do love to to count and recognize uh, but anyway so yeah, so it pitted Uruguay and this kind of clash between the, the Danubian and Rio Platense schools of football. So these were two styles, uh, Jonathan could talk about it uh, a bit better, uh, that, that developed in different parts of the world, but they're also still pretty similar as well. Uh, and also from the Uruguayan perspective, uh, the game was uh, very significant in that it really marked the end of their uh, global dominance and it really ushered in uh, a period of, of, of decline. Um, on the international stage. And of course, the game itself was an absorbing contest, end-to-end attacking, uh, lots of drama and uh, moments um, in Uruguay, at least, that have been transformed into into legend. But yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think that's, that's sort of a key point that um, a lot of the games we do on this podcast are not great. You know, the, the, the game itself is not that exciting and not that high quality a game, but it has a significance. This is a game that has immense significance and also, you know, what what you find when you look back through world soccer or whatever, and, and you you see people being asked, "What's the greatest game you've ever seen? What's the greatest game in World Cup history?" And from nineteen eighty two onwards, people tend to say Italy three, Brazil two from nineteen eighty two. Before nineteen eighty two, everybody says this game, and it is, in as far as you can tell from the. Very, very complicated highlights, which are on YouTube. <laughs> a lot happened. We can certainly say that. Quite what order it happened in and who was doing what and when is a lot harder to say. But you can see that this was a game of enormous um, 
uh, incident as well as having this this profound significance. I mean, I'm going to have to jump in for the sake of our listeners because some people will say, well, hang on, the game of the century was, of course, Italy versus West Germany at uh, the Azteca uh, at the World Cup. But do you, uh, but a lot of journalists do think actually this was um, the great. Yeah, World I, Cup, well, okay. I'm, I don't think I think that 1970 game is massively overrated. It, it, it's a, it's a really exciting period of extra yeah. time because both it has both a plaque, sides Jonathan. Are... I've seen it. I mean, if I owned a stadium and I had yeah. a World Cup semi-final that finished four-three, I would probably uh-huh. also put a plaque up to it. But <laughs> I, I, I think if you actually watch it, um, uh-huh. it's just two teams who are exhausted and can't actually play in extra time. Mm-hmm. So, sure, that game was really exciting, but this game, mm-hmm. I, I think, is is much higher quality, and, and I think okay. the ramifications of it were much greater because, um, you know, the, the greatest team in the nineteen seventy World Cup was was neither West Germany nor Italy. Whereas Low Hungary didn't win this World Cup, I think they were the the greatest team in it. Yeah, and Martin, I should say uh, that I'm sure you know when you said that you wanted to go for a much older game, um, and this is obviously much more recent. You know, I'm sure long, younger listeners will be uh, appreciative of you bringing uh, a modern game to the, uh, to the conversation <laughs> from the 1954 World Cup. But then, I mean, the 1954 World Cup, just in general, was incredible. Obviously, we're we're looking at this from sort of the, the, the Uruguayan perspective in particular, a little bit from the Hungarian one as well. But Martin, the 54 World Cup, some absolutely incredible scorelines and some incredible moments and some incredible history there. I mean, just seeing um, how both sides got on in their groups, you know, Uruguay topped their group, beat Czechoslovakia 2-0, Scotland 7-0, but Hungary had defeated South Korea 9-0, obviously famously or in- infamously, depending on uh, how you look at it, West Germany 8-3 in the group. A lot of goals in this tournament. Yeah, I, mean, I, yeah, I think it's worth saying that the, the structure of the World Cup is slightly odd. So each group yes. had two seeded teams, two unseeded teams. Mm-hmm. And so the seeded teams would play the two unseeded teams, but not the other seeded side. Um, so uh, yeah, the other team in, in that Hungary group, you mentioned games against South Korea against West Germany. There's also Turkey in that group, who bizarrely was seeded ahead of West Germany. Uh, so a low is four team groups. The teams are you know they're only playing two games each, but if they finish level on points rather than going on goal difference, they don't have a have a playoff. So it's a it's a it's a very strange yeah uh, structure. I think that's probably one of the reasons why it is so high scoring. That certainly in the early stages you got a lot of mismatches. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you also had, for instance, uh, that the, the Switzerland Austria game finished seven five, which I think is still the highest scoring <laughs> game in World Cup history. And that appears to have been um, a result of, of, of extreme heat uh, in, in you know, the tournament in Switzerland. Um, and, and both sides seem to struggle really badly with the heat in the second half of that game. So I think what you're beginning to see is an attempt to play a more modern style of football, a more energetic form of football, but with bodies that are still not quite used to that. But sports science hasn't quite caught up to the tactics. And I think the big change you see in the 60s are a result of sports science catching up with what people are trying to do tactically. And so I think that's an- another reason why you suddenly get teams collapse. Um, but also, you know, this is this is when football is, is still a very, very attacking sport. You know, the, the idea is just to score more than the opposition. The idea of, of sort of sitting back and defending is still fairly, fairly alien to teams. Yeah, which, I mean, that absolutely. When you say that the teams were knackered, therefore there were more goals. In the modern era, the teams were knackered, therefore there were no goals, or, or much fewer goals, of course, would probably tend to be the case. Um, but Martin, Uruguay, going into the tournament, they they had won the 1950 World Cup, which is, of course, one of the great uh, uh, sort of David and Goliath stories as well. They must have been very confident going into this one. 
Yeah, um, Uruguay were confident going in. I mean, the team was arguably, in my opinion, it was stronger than the 1950 team. Uh, so they had already lost. They were without um, Alcides, Alcides uh, Guija, uh, who was the hero of the Maracanazo, the right winger, uh, who scored the winning goal against Brazil. Um, he had moved to Italy a couple of years before that. Uh, but they had replaced, um, they had really uh, bolstered their attack uh, with uh, some players like um, Abadi, uh, Ambrois, uh, Borges, a winger. Um, but they still maintained that base of that 1950 side. So the two main men were um, Juan Alberto Schiaffino, um, who was Uruguay's, you would say, is his ma- their main man. Uh, he was the brains of the team, um, a real elegant inside left playmaker, uh, excellent dribbler, just brilliant vision, intelligence, and all the attacking. Well, most of Uruguay's attacks we'll see in the in this game against Hungary uh, roll through him. Um, they also had their captain, Obdulio Varela, um, who was still there, so that mythical um, kind of figure, uh, the leader of the team. He was 37 years old going into this tournament, so he had lost most of his uh, pace. Um, but he's still that larger-than-life figure, and he was still critically important to Uruguay's um, their team structure. Uh, from his position at centre half, which is a, a traditionally a very important uh, part of Uruguay's uh, style of play, um, and they also had uh, players like right back uh, Victor Rodriguez Andrade, uh, who was the nephew of uh, the famous uh, Jose Leandro Andrade, uh, who was the first black international superstar uh, who played for Uruguay in the um, in the 1920s in the Paris Olympic Games and then the other the other victories. Um, but yeah, going in, there were mixed results. I mean, Uruguay, after that 1950 win, they didn't play a game until 1952. Uh, so it was about 20 months uh, without a game compared to Hungary. I'm not sure how many games they had played between yeah, 50 and 52. But uh, Well, they, they, the World Cup final was the 36th game since 1950. There you go. So... Uh, yeah, and, and they were playing. You know, they were deliberately playing a lot because they were good. And so, for the communist government, there was huge propaganda returns in 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 playing this brilliant football and annihilating everybody. Uh, I wanted to ask you though, uh, Martin, about about the coach, about Juan Lopez, um, who'd been the coach in 1950. Um, my impression is he he was sort of a figurehead. He wasn't really sort of a uh, a real sort of tactical mastermind. But he'd become coach of Peñarol in '52, so did was that Correct. disruptive? The fact that he was coaching one of the two big sides in Uruguay, because I, I know that had been an issue with him Herschel in the build-up to 1950. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, it was. Yeah, Juan López was. Yeah, he was um, when he moved to Peñarol in '52. Uh, there were issues with uh, uh, kind of selection selection controversies um, for Uruguay. So uh, I think it was in the '53 game against England that I can talk about a bit. He uh, didn't play a couple of players from Ben Yadol and there was pressure to play uh, players uh, from them and when he played someone from Nacional, their rivals, uh, there were some issues there. Um, but I think most of throughout most of his uh, Uruguay um, managerial career, um, he was managing teams at the same time. Um, but he wasn't this master kind of tactician. Like He was someone that would say that you know, one of his main kind of phrases that there are no secrets in football. Um, so Uruguay kind of, you know, really always held on to tradition, their style of play. So they didn't need this kind of master 
um, technician, uh, tactician, and he also wasn't um, a disciplinarian as well. He had a real close relationship to players, and he really sought the advice of everyone uh, around him. So uh, this is something that um, he would run into trouble over uh, later in the tournament in the lead up to this game um, that I can go into. Uh, but yeah, Juan Lopez was yeah an interesting, interesting figure. Yeah, I mean, Martin, you mentioned the kind of the, the, the style of play and, and, and tactics and whatnot. Obviously, in the modern day, one can think of Uruguay having very stern, solid central midfield players, a bit of quality up top. Um, how was the, the sort of the stereotype or the style of play back then? Was it quite similar or, or quite dissimilar? I mean, when you're looking at the, yeah, the Rio Platense style, uh, Jonathan could explain it uh, a bit more. Um, but Uruguay's game was still based upon um, combination, short passing style of play. And they still did rely on kind of creative uh, attacking players as well. Um, so it still had this dribbling um, kind of style from the wingers as well. But they still did maintain a kind of defensive base. So if you want to compare them to Argentina, uh, Uruguay did seem a bit more... sure if it was... Pragmatic, I guess, um, and they really did adapt to situations. They were they, they were always thought about. Um, they weren't too kind of proud to 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 not change up their style. They were able to adapt to opposition as well, um, but they were still hard uh, teams. Um, really, uh, you can see that they didn't play. Um, they, they they try to play with uh, uh, with style and with kind of uh, mm-hmm. um, elegance, but yeah. The, at times they did yeah, kind of get a bit physical. They weren't scared of sure. that. Well, South American teams tend not to be. But, uh, bless them. But no. Jonathan, <laughs> Uruguay, they, I mean, geographically where they are, it was an interesting place. They're sort of, you know, if you will, sort of in between Argentina and Brazil, you know, two of international football's heavyweights. And obviously they'd sort of um, they'd, they'd beaten Brazil in the 1950, well, sort of unofficial final, if you like, the final match of the the tournament, you know, it's quite remarkable where they sit, considering they have these two massive neighbours in terms of population, geographical, a ge- a geographical sort of landmass, but also their place in the game as well. Yeah, well, that's what actually uh, made them so good, and that's what made them reach the top of South American football. So, football was introduced into Uruguay, and it was closely entwined from the very start. It was always closely entwined with the national story and that kind of national story from at least the late 19th century or even from independence was Uruguay this very small country wedged between the two giants overlooking them Brazil and Argentina Uh, up until the first decade of the 20th century Uruguay's borders weren't even complete They, they didn't have any treaties with Argentina or Brazil so they're always kind of in 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 the imaginary and also in reality they were under threat from their neighbors um so football was a way that uruguay um could really match their countries the 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 neighbors that were geographically um larger in size that had military strength um, and economic strength so that was so that was reflected in football as well the way that uruguay played was based on intelligence and teamwork um, and beating the opposition as well, um, mm-hmm. no matter how they could do it. 
And then that's tied into this idea of of, of Gara, isn't it? Like, like Gara Charua. Mm. So, I mean, do you want to explain a little bit about, about what that is? Yeah, so the Gara Charua is something that's developed a little bit later on. So, I mean, Uruguay didn't really have an idea of Gara Charua as a, as a concept, an idea until the 1930s. Um, so before then, Uruguay played football and they just wanted to play uh, good football. Um, it was based on combinations. It, was based on, it wasn't based on um, solely just a determination. Um, and that this is what the Garachuro is. I didn't explain that. So this kind of, uh, it's kind of like street smarts, this uh, kind of uh, determination, you know, winning at all costs or like, you know, kind of in the face of adversity, kind of overcoming um, and winning. Um, but Uruguay, that didn't really develop until after uh, their um, first World Cup win in 1930. Um, so that was kind of, that was an idea that developed uh, in line with Uruguay's decline um, as a power. Um, this started around 1930 when their players were getting older, um, things weren't looking that good. And then they won in the 1935 uh, Copa America in Peru. With uh, they had players like Nasazzi, who was um, getting on. He was in his late 30s at the time, um, and other players as well. They were aging, and they beat Argentina in the final. And that was the moment when this kind of idea of Garra came in. Uh, so it wasn't so much as wasn't so much uh, the actual determination, um, this kind of innate characteristic of Uruguay, but it was more this kind of like. This is my opinion as well, but this is more of a kind of desperation to kind of go back to that successful past. Um, so this is something that wasn't really, that didn't get Uruguay to the top in the first few decades. But from 1950 and 1954, we'll see here where the idea of Garra um, really comes out um, as, as one of the, 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 one of the main uh, characteristics of, of the Uruguayan game. Okay then, chaps. Well, let's have a quick break and then we'll talk about the match itself. See you in a moment, everybody. Welcome back to the greatest games on the Blizzard. Right, gentlemen. Um, so we talked a lot about the uh, the Uruguayans. I think it's fair, Jonathan, to maybe mention the Hungarians. <laughs> uh, they, uh, <laughs> they, we talk about goals in, in the tournament. I mean, uh, uh, Shanda Kocsis uh, got a fair few. He got eleven in total, uh, which is quite remarkable. Because even the, I think the, the next goal scorer down was, was six goals or four goals, something like that. So he was. Well, well away the, the the tournament's top goal scorer, but I mean, some of the names heard long ago, Jonathan, if you will, you know, Nanda <laughs> Hidiguti, Tibor, uh, 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 Pushkash, you know, what a team they had. Oh, I mean, an amazing side. It's 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 the. I mean, obviously, people didn't realise this at the time, but it's the final flowering of of this sort of mm. golden three decades, three and a half decades of Hungarian football. Um. So Hungary had been in the World Cup final in in thirty eight. Uh, they'd they'd had this incredibly vibrant and and rich culture, uh, which because of the political and economic turmoil in 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 Central Europe, uh, with the decline of the Habsburg Empire in the end of the First World War in the nineteen twenties, this is an enormous diaspora. And so the the the, the book you very kindly mentioned, the names had long ago, uh, <laughs> is really about that diaspora, and it's about how Hungarians go everywhere where people are good at football. There's been a Hungarian influence. So I think you can make the case that other than Uruguay in 1930, every major, every team that's won the World Cup 
has done so in some part because of Hungarian influence. So even in 1950, it's Herschel, uh, who who'd essentially been exiled from 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 Argentina because of match fixing. He he winds up in in Uruguay, uh, and he becomes coach of Peñarol. And he he'd he'd been appointed national coach before 1950, but it, it had been vetoed because of his links to to one of the two major clubs. It was you know that was seen as being too divisive, but his influence over Varela was clearly significant. And, and you know the suggestions that the way the way Uruguay played against Brazil in that last game was in part influenced by by Herschel's ideas, as as sort of transmitted through through Varela. Um, but enormous influence over Brazil, over Argentina, over France, over Scandinavia. Over Italy, I mean, sixty coaches in Serie A before the end of the Second World War were Hungarian, um, Germany, Austria, uh, former Yugoslavia, and even England through the two victories in fifty three and fifty four when they won five uh, won six three at, at Wembley and then seven one in in Budapest, um, and, and this 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 great culture begins to be attacked. By the right-wing governments of the late thirties, uh, because a lot of the uh, a lot of the best players, a lot of the best coaches, a lot of the best thinkers about football were were Jewish, and so MTK, which was perceived as being the Jewish club, was was run down and and, and was effectively forced to close uh, at the beginning of the Second World War, when Hungary allies to, to Nazi Germany and adopts the Nuremberg laws. Uh, it starts up again. Uh, after the Second World War, but you then get the communist government takes over in 1947. It decides to nationalise football in 1949. And in the short term, this is very beneficial, certainly for the national team, that the majority of the best players are, are uh, collected together at Honved, which was the army club, so they could conscript players. Um, and Emzikar becomes Volslobogo, which means Red Banner was a team of the, of the, of the secret police. Um and they're sort of the second team. So you, people like Hidakuti played for um, for Vojtlebogo, for MTK, but Pushkas and Boschstick were, were at uh, Honved. And so because they're playing together all the time, they understand each other's games. The the unit becomes very slick. There's this great mutual understanding. Um, Which was a club side, really. Yeah, it, it was a club. Yeah, it was. I mean, it, yeah. it, it's sort of, it's like a very, I mean, essentially they'd looked at Italy in the 1930s and how the mm-hmm. bulk of their squad had come from Juventus. And I guess a more, more modern examples would be how many of the Germany team from 2014 played for Bayern or the Spain team of, of 2010 mm-hmm. played for Barcelona. But they'd done that artificially. Just get them all at the army club, get them all at, at Honved. And uh, Fernand Schwarz, which had been the other great power along with MTK uh, in the 20s and 30s, they were seen as being uh, the German club uh, and they were seen as being very nationalistic and had right-wing elements. And so they were deliberately run down. And so these two great schools of football, MTK and Fernandes-Farosh, have, have both, you know, one by the right-wing, one by the left-wing, have both been deliberately, you know, the roots have been cut out. And so once you get to the end of this generation, uh, and that is accelerated by the uprising in 1956, which leads to a number of key players Pushkas most obviously, but also Shibo, also Coxish. Uh, they all defected. And the entire under-21 under squad, which was in Geneva at the time of the uprising, they all go en masse. And there's nothing there to replace them. But the culture that produced those players and that that knowledge 
had been destroyed. So this 954 is really the last flowering of the, the Great Hungary. And it was a really great Hungary. They'd won the Olympics in 52 and they'd gone unbeaten in those 30-odd games since since 1950. Mm-hmm. Um, Uruguay, of course, would say defending world champions and they'd never lost a World Cup match. Hungary unbeaten after they'd returned to international football. Uh, Hungary were the favourites, though. I mean, Luis Tricoli, the head of the Uruguayan delegation, said head of the match, I believe this game is going to be the real final of the tournament. Four years ago, we were the underdogs against Brazil. As far as I can tell, the Hungarian team is even better. Nevertheless, we succeeded in 1950, and I believe we can repeat that. Of course, West Germany would go on to win the tournament, but in saying that they're the underdogs, but yet they were sort of quietly confident, it showed you what both parties, especially the Ukrainians, thought of this game, Martin, that this there was a feeling that these were the best two sides in the tournament, and as they were saying, it's the unofficial final. Yeah, that's that's definitely the case, and I've got a few uh, contemporary sources from Uruguay at the time that, that pretty much relayed that exact sentiment. Uh, a lot of it was... Uh, a lot of it kind of set up a more of a kind of back-to-the-wall type mentality for Uruguay as well. A lot of them were talking about um, the European uh, media was was talking up Hungary and they were the favourites against Uruguay. So a lot of it was like, yeah, we can go in there and, and, and show them, you know, what we can do and that we're not just, you know, we're not, uh, yeah, we haven't, we shouldn't be written off um, anytime soon. Uh, but that was the idea, yeah, going into the game um, pretty much that it was a final. Well, yeah, well, I mean, you mentioned the sort of the, the European press there. We we know in say you know nineteen sixty two you know when the Italian journalists uh, offended Chile and those big riff happened there and wondering whether that kind of really put more of a, a rift more of a split between this European and, and South American sort of traditions and ideas was there a, a huge split or a, was was were the Europeans seen as as snobs towards the South Americans at this point in football had that always been there. For Uruguay, not really. There wasn't really the case. I mean, there were some. There were a little. They were a bit disgruntled at uh, the journalists um, for this kind of, you know, uh, pro-European bias. Um, but there was nothing. There was no real kind of anti-European sentiment in Uruguay. Um, I can't talk for the other uh, South American nations, like uh, Argentina, for example, who kind of had this uh, heavy oppositional um, identity. But I mean, we, we'd seen the real flashpoint between Brazil and Hungary in the in the quarterfinal. Um, yes. You know, the 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 Battle of True. Bern. Yeah, you know, this incredibly violent game with uh, three sendings off. I think in the end, that mass brawls, allegations of racial abuse by the Hungarians towards the Brazilians, um, you know, bottles being thrown in the tunnel afterwards. Uh, I mean, Pushkas was had been injured in the group game against West Germany. Had, had suffered a stress fracture of the ankle. And some missed both the quarter and the semi final, but he got involved apparently throwing a, a soda siphon. Uh, so, so that game had been, you know, there'd been enormous uh, tension there. And I think what's notable about this game uh, is is sort of the the sense of relief afterwards that it, it passed off without violent incident. I mean, it's it's very fiercely contested, but you see both sides sort of talk about the other team as as gentlemen that this was just a great yeah. game of football. But there was a concerted effort before the game, Jonathan, you'd say, yeah, absolutely, to make sure yeah, yeah. that there wasn't a repeat of the Battle of Bern between Hungary and Brazil. Yeah, I mean, because I mean, those scenes had been um, yeah, a great embarrassment for football 
that I mean, clearly it would get worse in I mean, Chile in in 1962, I guess, is is the worst example of that. But I think there was a sort of growing sense that, um, or, or or a fear that was planted with with that quarterfinal that if if this is how football is going to be, this doesn't this doesn't really work. Yeah, but the coach though, uh, Gustav Sebes said he gathered his players, didn't he, before the game, and the game plan was to keep position but keep moving the ball quickly and not sort of dilly dally on on the ball and try any tricks because Uruguayans love to get stuck into the tackle. So, well, <laughs> well okay. You know, he... I have to say I'm really skeptical that Shevesh ever said that. Shevesh okay. was well, he may I mean... not have used used the Hungarian no, no, I, of but... dilly dally. But... <laughs> <laughs> no, Shevesh was a was a was a brilliant politician. Okay. He was a great manager in the sense of getting stuff organised, making sure his team had the right equipment, making sure training happened on time, getting the right staff in place. He had zero tactical knowledge. Everybody who played <laughs> for him, everybody who worked with him, says that you know he he and he he knew that he knew he was an administrator. He wasn't a coach. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so you know, one of the things with with Hungary in this period is the sort of the constant sort of throughput of coaches. Uh, as he keeps on picking coaches who turn out to be politically unacceptable to the to the communist government, he was very good at, at sort of managing upwards. So uh, Martin Bukovi, who was the coach of NTK of Oslo at the time, I, I think is probably the greatest coach who's ever existed in terms of a tactical uh, intuition and, and and understanding. But he could never have been national coach because he was just he just couldn't get on with people and he becomes after the uprising or sorry just before the uprising after Shebesh loses his job in 56 Bukovi gets the job as part of a three man committee and it rapidly becomes apparent that this just isn't going to work because he he can't handle the personal relationships of having to deal with with the communist authorities so somebody in the Hungarian setup I'm sure said that I'd be very surprised if Shebesh said it, <laughs> or if he did say it, somebody had written it down and given it to him to say. Yeah. <laughs> well, fair enough. I mean, with we, the um, yeah, sorry, yeah. So with the Battle of Bern, that also had the violence of that Hungary Brazil game had a big influence on Uruguay's uh, style of play as well, or their attitudes going into the game, um, and that was looked at in different ways. So first, they were conscious of the risks of any uh, send-offs. Um, so this was late in. The tournament, Uruguay had already suffered uh, a few injuries and fitness issues, fitness issues going into the game. Um, so they were, and knowing that they were facing a strong side, they kind of made sure, or journalists um, were making sure that they weren't getting into any fights or any kind of rough goals like that um, to risk going a man down. Um, and they also, back to the issue of South America versus. Um, Europe. Um, there's also a feeling that Uruguay kind of had to save the reputation of South American football as well after that contest. I mean, this is not to put the sole blame on Brazil for that um, game uh, against Hungary, um, their actions. Um, but Uruguay's style has always been based, um, while well, it's always been based on opposition to um, their neighbours in Brazil and Argentina, they've always had a strong kind of regional identity and the sense that they were leaders of South American football, um, had a really strong kind of internationalism, um, a sporting internationalism in their game. Um, so Montevideo's newspapers as well, they kind of brought out this, um, they hit out against uh, European bias, um, but they did it through um, FIFA, by attacking FIFA for not suspending any of the Hungarian players for the semi-final. 
I'm well, not I mean, sure that's an extraordinary point that Bostic was sent off but was not suspended. Yeah. So Uruguay's press was really angry at that for not uh, sending anyone off for that. And they claimed that the, this global authority, um, their lack of action was showing a clear European bias. And they said the same thing, I don't know, it was because Brazil wasn't playing in the next game. But they said, let's see, you know, uh, what happens when South American teams do this? Let's see what happens if they make the next round. Um, so that kind of really... Well, we, we, we did see eight years later that Gavincha got sent off in the semifinal in 62 and still played in the final. So yeah. this idea of suspending players of being sent off seems not to have been as, as obvious as it would appear to us. Mm. <laughs> mm. Well, there were some, some key players missing for the semifinal, though, between Hungary and, and Uruguay. Uh, Pushkash, of course, got an injury against uh, Brazil. But Uruguay were without Oscar, Miguez and Abadi, uh, Martin, which were, were two big players for them and two big losses. Well, and Vavela as well. Yep. Yeah, yes. two big. And yeah, I was going to mention, uh, yeah, Abdulio was probably the most influential uh, loss. Uh, so he got injured in the in Uruguay's uh, quarterfinal game against England um, that they won 4-2. Um, and Abdulio actually injured himself after scoring to put Uruguay up 2-1 in the first half. He he scored from outside the area and he ran in and you can see it in the footage, him leaping up in celebration near the penalty spot. And then when he came down, he had actually injured his hamstring um, and that forced him off the pitch for the rest of the game. But it didn't physically force him off the pitch for that game. So he remained um, on the pitch uh, on the Uruguay's left wing so Juan Alberto Shafino was moved into his position at centre half and Obdulio was pretty much just sitting on the sideline and just pretty much coaching the side for that game. Um, so yeah, so going into this game, you had Obdulio, uh, Abadi and Miguez who were out. Um, so Abadi was replaced by a right winger from Nacional uh, called Souto. Um, and regarding Obdulio's place, there are even suggestions that uh, Juan Shafino um, would be switched from inside left to a centre-half position. Um, he'd been known to... I mean, he, was, he had that much quality that he could play anywhere on the park. And I think later on in Italy, in his career in Italy, uh, he even ended up playing as a sweeper at some point. Um, but the biggest controversy leading into the game was uh, the shock exclusion of uh, Miguez, Uruguay's centre-forward, who up to that point and to this day is still Uruguay's top scorer, all-time top scorer in the World Cup. Um, so he was seen as a guaranteed starter. Uh, to the day of the game, he was announced in the Uruguayan press um, in the lineup. And But word had it that there were two officials in the Uruguayan delegation who were becoming fed up with Miguez and his attitude. Um, so Miguez was... Um, he was kind of the... Archetypal Rio Platense style footballer, um, in that he's like a cara sucia that Jonathan wrote about uh, in his Argentina book. Uh, so he had a real game of the um, of, of street football where he was kind of really creative. Um, he would he was known to just do rabonas, nutmegs, and just you know just toy with the opposition. And he had that kind of freedom and innocence that wasn't really didn't really fit in with Uruguay's. Um, kind of overarching mentality that football was, you know, about winning. This is about being serious. So he was a bit of an anomaly, and that kind of style of play was shown the year before when Uruguay played England uh, at the Centenario. So that was the first game between the two countries um, in 1953, and Uruguay ended up winning that 2-1. 
absolutely dominate dominated England. Um, and by the end of it, they were they were pretty much Uruguay were pretty much just they were taking the piss out of England. I must say, um, <laughs> Miguez in particular. Like I mean, they people were saying that Uruguay could have racked up a a margin as wide as the Hungarians did later in that year if it wasn't for Miguez and other players just resorting to tricks. Um, there was one moment towards the end of that game that Miguez, um, he did uh, two consecutive sombreros. So he flicked the ball over um, England's <laughs> captain, Billy Wright, twice at the end um, of the game. Um, so that was a, this is the type of player that you had. And going into the last game, some officials were, yeah, they were, they were fed up with his kind of lackadaisical approach to the game. He seemed a bit overconfident after defeating in after they beat England, and even in a practice game against the Swiss side, um, he had resorted to you know his little back heels, his tricks as well. Um, there was also a graver rumor as well to do with Miguez and um, one of the members of the delegation's uh, wives as well that he had that he had had an affair as well. I'm not sure if that was ever confirmed, but his exclusion here was um, a mystery. Um, but up until, yeah, as I said, up until the day of the game, um, Juan Lopez had him in the lineup. He resisted any moves, but amazingly, astonishingly, um, Miguez's inclusion was actually put up to a vote. And that included members of Uruguay's delegation, so officials as well. Um, they voted and they overruled the coach's decision <laughs> and Miguez was excluded from the team. And so it's Hoberg. Hoberg comes in instead. Is, is that so? Hoberg, yeah. So Hoberg comes in instead. So Hoberg was a naturalized Argentine. So he was born in Cordoba, and he had moved to Peñarol, that famous um, 1949 uh, Machina uh, machine side of Herschel. Um, so he replaced him um, at inside left. So for this game, they had um, Shafino move from his. Um, regular position at inside left into center forward to play a more withdrawn um, forward game. Um, so this Miguez exclusion really shook up Uruguay's attacking structure and that's what came out and that was evident um, in the yeah, during during the, the game against Hungary. Yeah. So let's talk about the match itself, gentlemen. It's a great game. Um, and, you know, as we say, there was a, a little bit of a, an open display to show that this is a more gentlemanly affair. This is not going to be another battle as, as as there was in Bern against uh, Hungary and Brazil, of course. And uh, it didn't have to wait too long for the first goal, Jonathan. 13 minutes in and uh, and Hungary went one goal up. Yeah, I mean, we should say that there's there's two two compilations of highlights of this game on YouTube. Yes. They're both deeply weird. So yes. don't, good, don't good go into this them. thinking you're going <laughs> to find something normal. So the shorter one seems to be a, a, an outtake from a, a longer story about a child trying to yeah. get to a game. And so it starts with him leaning through a car window, listening to a radio, and then trying to get a lift, and the lift going in the wrong direction. But there are highlights in and around that. With I'd recommend that one. With a BBC RP <laughs> uh, voiceover, which bears very little relation to anything going on. The other one is much longer, um, and it, it's one of the most disturbing things I've ever seen. It's like football highlights edited by, by David Lynch. Uh, there's this clock <laughs> with a Canada Dry ginger ale advert on it. And it's, it's obviously a clock uh, designed specially for football. So one hand shows the minutes and one hand shows the seconds. But it takes you, or it took me a long time to work that out. There just seem to be like random times, sort of like 20 past 12, <laughs> quarter to seven. Then it turns out this is actually sort of seven minutes and 45 seconds or, yeah. or whatever. Um, 
and it's it's four four different it's footage from four cameras so spliced together. Some of it has this very jaunty theme music and a German commentary. Some of it's dead silent. It's very very hard to work out what's going on. But what we do know is in the thirteenth minute, Hidakuti in that classic deep lying role chips the ball to Coxfish, who's famously you know, golden haired, brilliant in the air, uh, and he heads it down for Shibor, who who scores sort of scores this low shot, which uh, Maspoli's keeper maybe might have could do better. He's a little bit flat footed, mm. but and Good this man. is this is what Hungary do though. The, Hungary were one of the first teams to take uh, warm up seriously, and a, a feature of their play in the early fifties is they would surge into a lead. They regularly were one or two nil up after sort of ten fifteen minutes, and so it was again. Yeah, well, the second goal came um, just after half time, uh, and it was Hidaguti who uh, was, you know, one of the great stars of that hung- Hungarian side. And at 2-0 up, they're, they're going to be feeling confident. They thought, you know, well, we'll go on and, uh, and we'll be OK. But the man that you mentioned, uh, Martin, who who came into the side, uh, Juan Hoberg, um, pulled one back uh, for, for, for Uruguay in 75 minutes, I suppose justifying his inclusion because it was very controversial, as you mentioned, mm. that he was left out the side. Uh, sorry, yeah. the guess was, was left out the side, sorry. Yeah, yeah. So Uruguay, as I said, Shafino's uh, the the switch, the the change of the attacking uh, lineup or structure really affected Uruguay's play in the first half. It appears um, it was all a lot of it was all disconnected as well, at least compared to the Hungarians' um, highly organised play. Um, so Uruguay, yeah, they they still had Shafino as their main attacking outlet. So he was all over the pitch, um, the outlet for every attack. Um, and only to that point, Ambrose was the only one who was really supporting him in any way. Um, but yeah, so on the, in the 75th minute around there, um, Uruguay got one back. Um, and that was actually from, uh, it began in the middle of the pitch. Uh, it was Ambrose that received the ball, I believe. And he moved forward and he, and he put Holberg through on goal and he slid the ball past um, the Hungarian goalkeeper um, quite nicely. And that brought them back into the game. And that caused yeah, a frenzy of chances, I think, after um, getting that one back. Um, and this was, yeah, so I think in the second half as well, I mean, it was raining all day before the <laughs> game. and that had effect- yeah. yeah, they weren't great. And I think it was a light rain during the first half, but I think it started raining heavily. It started bucketing down maybe towards the end of the first half. And that might have affected. Well, but that's one of the other weird things about the highlights is there's <laughs> loads of cutaways to the crowd of people wearing bizarre things on their heads, which just makes. <laughs> so there's a man with a, a, a like a like a wicker basket on his head. There's yeah, a child with this sort of like a witch's hat made of cardboard uh-huh. on, on his head. So like the, the the whole thing is utterly bizarre. But yeah, presumably that's just because it was raining heavily and there was no roof. Or because there was a strong community of druids nearby who had a keen interest in football. I, I don't quite know, Jonathan. The famous but, Lausanne druidic community. <laughs> but uh, in the 86th minute, uh, Hoburg scored again to, to equalise for Uruguay, which was incredible incredible uh, comeback, of course. Rounds the goalkeeper, slots home. It actually takes it really well because there's two Hungarian yeah. defenders going back and you know, he, he sort of maintains his composure and waits and picks his spot. Yeah, considering the pressure of that moment, as you're absolutely right, composure is is the word. Now, am I right in saying, Martin? He then suffers during the celebrations a cardiac arrest. That is right. Well, it appears that way. I mean, 
the post goal celebration uh, celebrations here that, that that produced that episode in, in the Uruguayan press, they reported it that he had collapsed and um, as a result of a challenge from two Hungarian players as he took the shot. But if you look at the actual goal, then you see that there's no yeah. players near him. Well, um, and he so also celebrates for a few moments as well. And he celebrates so as well, yeah. So he gets yeah, yeah he gets swamped by his players. And then, yeah, he does appear to collapse and he was taken off the field. Um, and yeah, he had that agonizing equalizer um, seems to cause him that uh, cardiac arrest. So you see the famous picture. Absolutely... Yeah. It's crazy, yeah. So you see that picture of him on the sidelines footage and footage of him as well uh, with the Uruguayan doctor uh, and, and someone else that have a, a towel on their head as, uh, as well, something on their head. Um, you thought, someone thought it was a... Yeah, yeah. Well, that that explains that. But anyway, <laughs> so there's a famous uh, there's a famous fo- uh, picture of him getting, um, yeah, his, his shirts off. He's getting his chest massaged, receiving all kinds of uh, smelling salts, whatever they did, and <laughs> like that, you know, he's he's back up alive and gets back on the on the pitch. But whether and that then hits is... the post very soon afterwards. Yeah, but, but, he very nearly all... completed a hat trick to win it. Which <laughs> well, yeah. well, but. It's change the, the course of history of course but i mean it's, it, sorry martin yeah no it's okay so whether that was actually true or not if you did suffer the that cardiac arrest that i think the moment really that that really kind of symbolized the significance of that moment uh for uruguay in terms of the game but uruguayan football as a whole so like they were on the brink of being defeated for the first ever time um they were losing their spot at um at the top of the world really um so the Uruguayans, well, in this case, it was you know an, an adopted Uruguayan. He was Argentine. Um, he literally left everything on the pitch uh, when he scored. Uh, so yeah. it's just amazing. And of course, the 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 old uh, voiceover on the BBC highlights, as you said, Jonathan, was sort of you know it's all too much excitement hey, for all one too player. much for Herberg. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it is it is remarkable, but of course, again, it shows you the sign of the times. Not only with that voiceover, but the fact is that this man has suffered some sort of uh, trauma and, you know, a, a chest massage and uh, smelling salts and he's, and he's back on the field. There were no substitutes, of course, and, and off he went into extra time. Um, well, he hits a post. And as, yeah, of course. As the ball comes back off a post, Schiaffino yeah. um, and, uh, and Grossish, the keeper, collide. And that, in as far as you can tell anything from these bizarre highlights, <laughs> it seems to me that Schiaffino never quite recovers from that, but he's sort of carrying an injury as well. So you, you're two mm. main sort of forwards. One of them's had some heart problem and one of them's just got got clattered in the leg by, by Grossish. Yeah. And it, after that, Hungary do, as as they would, they do seem to take control. Yeah. Well, and it's that man, Kochish, who finishes the top scorer, of course, with 11 goals, as I mentioned. And you said he was, you know, the golden head. That was his nickname. And he scores two headers um, in the second half of extra time. Yeah, and it, it does off. make you wonder as well that the, the fact that three of the goals are headers and the first goal is in a knockdown, had Vavela been there, would Uruguay have been better in the air at the back? But Maybe. I mean, I don't know. So even without Varela, Uruguay was still known to be strong in the air. So they had Maspoli, who was a big man, and they had uh, their centre-backs, center, center Williams, Martinez, and Jose Santa Maria. And Santa Maria, of course, goes on to, to play for Real Madrid and win the European Cup. So, so pe- people may have heard of him as well. So yeah. yeah, so at the time, yeah, he was in Nacional, and I think a few years later he moved to, to Real Madrid. Um, but yeah, so that, was a, that came as a shock um, to the Uruguayans as well, that they could concede um, three goals, yeah, in one game. Um, like that, 
Um, but back to before before the second half as well, uh, before the uh, extra time, there was another chance. It happened before Uruguay's equaliser, but in the Uruguayan, um, the, the legend is that after Uruguay had equalised, um, in the last minute of regulation time, Shafino had a shot um, that had beaten the keeper and it was rolling towards goal and it actually got stuck in the mud just before the line and it was cleared um, by a Hungarian player. Um, if you look at the reports in the Uruguayan press, this actually occurred when they were one goal down um, as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's something that's kind of stuck in Uruguay. It's like, oh, we, we got the equaliser. And we almost won it right at the death. But that's how, it, yeah. If yeah. that was the actual case, well, we never know. Uh-huh. Well, after the game, uh, Shebesh, the, the Hungarian manager, uh, thought that they'd won due to their superior fitness levels which was helped by conserving energy by knocking the ball around better. And he said, both teams were excellent. I instructed the team to put the ball on the ground and make it run all the time. We were aware that Uruguay could not keep up the pace they were dictating in the final period of the game, and our assumption turned out to be true in extra time. Well, as you say, Jonathan, maybe not the best tactician. And maybe, well, almost certainly, those two injuries that you described, you know, minutes earlier... It had the real effect. And actually, Shebesh's idea of them having a superior fitness... Yeah, I, I don't know about that. It's, it's something that I've, I've never quite been able to pin down because if you read a lot of the English newspaper reports before the, the 6-3 and before the 7-1, before the 7-1 particularly, English journalists are invited in to, to watch Hungry Train and they're, they're shocked by how much physical work they do. And there's, yeah. all, there's all these very precise details in the English papers of how they do these runs through the forest, how they do these shuttle runs, how they do sprints, how they do weights. So I think Hungary were unusually physically well prepared. Having said that, Quarter final against Brazil, two 0 up, and end up clinging on really at the end. And had it not been for the sendings off, maybe they wouldn't have done this game. Two 0 up goes back to two two. Then the final, two 0 up, and they lose yeah. it three two. So that quick start and then trying to cling on does seem to be the way they did it. So I I haven't quite been able to to work out whether they really were fitter or whether they were just capable of these very fast starts. Yeah, well, some teams didn't take the warm-up seriously, you know, and they were one of the few, as, as were Brazil at the time, which seems absolutely remarkable these days. But but Hungary won, of course. Uruguay um, were knocked out. They were magnanimous in defeat, saying Hungary were the best team they'd come up against and so on. But what result did... did what, what, what was the sort of ramifications or, I, don't, I suppose, one of a better word, the sort of legacy of this of this result, uh, uh, Martin? Where, where, where did Uruguayan football kind of go from here was there a lot of inward looking um a lot of questions being asked yeah so i mean the immediate reactions to the game were firstly positive um the uruguayan press were in awe of what they had witnessed like they they had said at the time you know this was this was the game of the century as well that's what they were saying um so they praised uruguay for their honorable defeat and also they really made the point of um talking about uruguay um losing like champions so they continued to play attacking um, or with attacking intent and with elegance. But also one of the headlines was, you know, we know how to lose. And that was something that the Uruguayans kind of held on to. And, I mean, when you're looking at it now, that, that might not be the case with some Uruguayan teams, some people would say. Um, but they had a lot of was praise for... All, was that also a comment, maybe a thinly veiled dig towards, say, Argentina and Brazil? We know how to lose? It could be, yeah. I mean. Maybe, but as I said, there wasn't, yeah, at that point, there wasn't a huge kind of, I mean, rivalry with uh, 
Brazil. I mean, obviously they had one at Maracanã, but Uruguay was still kind of humble in victory as well. And maybe they just didn't know how to react. I mean, this is the first time they've lost <laughs> on the global stage. Um, but when Uruguay uh, returned home, that's when the recriminations kind of really began. Um, so the excuses come up about, um, firstly, Miguez's exclusion um, and its effect on Uruguay's attacking structure, um, and also Maspoli, uh, Uruguay's goalkeeper as well. Um, some Uruguayan journalists were really, really critical um, at him as well. And they also look back to uh, Uruguay's uh, lack of physical preparation and also their tiredness and the injuries as well. Um, so when you go back to that second half, um, there was another injury that we didn't talk about, who was uh, Rodriguez Andrade, um, who was Uruguay's right back. Um, so he had been injured. He inju injured his knee in the England game in the quarterfinal. And so he had, you can see it in the footage that his, his right knee was strapped up for the, the whole game. And he had actually suffered that injury. It, it, it had worsened um, in the second half of that uh, extra time. And the Uruguayans like to say that, you know, when he was off the pitch, that's when Hungary were able to um, push ahead and get those equalizers. Um, but anyway, so overall, I think, yeah, so the game signaled the beginning of the end for the Uruguay's global domination and the end of that kind of Maracanã uh, generation. So Obdulio Varela, uh, he never played for Uruguay again and he would retire altogether all uh, from football the following year. Um, Shafino um, went off to Europe. So before the world, that World Cup, um, he had already uh, had a transfer to Milan agreed to. Um, so he went on to even represent Italy um, with Alcides Gija. Um, but yeah, so this first defeat kind of, yeah, it was the realization that the kind of rest of the world really had caught up to them and surpassed them, I think. Um, but looking at it now, it's more of a, for Uruguay, it's, it's, it's seen as a, as a missed opportunity, a real, you know, what could have been. Um, decades later, some of the Uruguayan players, so looking at the 70s, there's a few interviews that I've read with um, Varela and also um, Andrade, or Rodriguez Andrade, um, who pretty much just said, I don't want to talk about it. I, I don't want to talk about that tournament at all. Um, so it really represented, yes, it was really a, a missed opportunity um, for them. Um, but looking back on it now, it really represented a kind of lost time as well. It was like a game that was played respectfully without much violence. Uruguayans were losing honorably. Um, and yeah, so Uruguay's current coach, um, Oscar Tabares, he's actually um, spoken about the game a couple of times, I think during the World Cup, and even before uh, the friendly against Hungary at the end of uh, 2019. Um, and he was, I think he was in primary school at the time. He said that he listened to the game on the radio. But he also, he used to talk about, or he still talks about how this current Uruguay side um, is, is, is seeking to kind of bring back that spirit of 1954. Really idealistic, um, respectful, a game based on mutual respect between opponents, playing hard but playing fair. Um, and that, you know, bar a few um, kind of famous um, exceptions. Uh, Uruguay, the current Uruguay team has kind of lived up to that. But anyway, it's all very idealistic. But remember, yeah, so this is Uruguay. It's been a long time since they've won a World Cup. So the so-called correct way to play, um, it usually takes a, a backseat, especially for a country where winning is, winning is the only option. Yeah. Well, Martin, it's been a, it's been a pleasure talking to you about this uh, this game, one of the great games, of course, 
from from World Cup history. I'll leave the final words to the Welsh referee Benjamin Griffiths, who said post match it was a battle of real men, a tough contest with some excellent football. Bravo, here, here. Um, so there we are. For more stories like that, go uh, check out theblizzard.co.uk. But Martin, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. No, please. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Absolutely right. Um, pleasure was all ours. So yes, ladies and gentlemen, as I say, check out theblizzard.co.uk. Uh, it's goodbye from myself and Jonathan, and we'll see you next week. Thank you.